Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue with a message titled Tongues and Prophecy Part 1 in our Gifts of the Holy Spirit series. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 5. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. I thought about entitling my address, Tongues and Prophecy Without Controversy. But as much as I would have hoped that that were the case, I suspect I was being somewhat naive. I doubt that I can explain this passage in such a way that's going to satisfy everyone, but I am going to try. Since the beginning of the charismatic movement, starting with the Azusa Street Revivals 1901 in Los Angeles, up until the present day, the question of tongues and prophecy has been extremely controversial among Christians. We have debated the meaning of the word, tongues, and the meaning of the word, prophecy. We've debated whether these gifts continue or whether they have ceased. We have debated the significance of these gifts. We have debated where it is appropriate to practice these gifts. We have debated. The sad part of all of this is that most of the debates have not happened in a vacuum. It's not as if we simply tried to come to, to 1 Corinthians 14 asking what the text actually means and says. I mean, too often we've approached this text with our particular set of biases. You know, from my perspective, the text is really not that complicated. But the problems arise because we come to the text trying to prove our position, a position we already hold before we've even opened our Bibles and read 1 Corinthians 14. See, one of the reasons for this has no doubt been the teaching by some in the early charismatic movement that the rest of the church is somehow trapped between Easter and Pentecost. They've received salvation, but not the power of the Spirit. And then there is the objection from the other side, pointing out that this is experience-based and not based on a careful study of Scripture and the ensuing anger with those who are trying to create what we call a two-tier Christianity between those who are truly spiritual and those who are just mundane in their spirituality. But before we put on our boxing gloves, consider the background. You know, it may surprise you to know that it was not the Charismatics who came up with this two-tier view of Christianity. Before them, in Methodist circles, some Methodist preachers had taught an experience with the Holy Spirit called entire sanctification. They taught that it was possible to reach a stage in our lives in which all desire for sinning ended. Now, I don't mean when we are glorified in heaven. I, I mean right here in our present state. All desire for sinning could be lost today through an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I mean, after that, you would never sin again. You know, I met one of those people once who had a 20-year a pin on his jacket. 
I wonder if you've ever met someone who had a, a 20-year pin of sobriety, and maybe it's an alcoholic, who hadn't had a drink in 20 years. Well, this guy, his pin said he hadn't sinned in 20 years. He had had the experience of entire sanctification, and now he was sin-free, 20 years of righteousness. You know, I wanted to tell him I, I never experienced 20 seconds of being sin-free. I wanted to confess to him that sometimes I preached a terrific sermon, and soon afterward I felt this immense amount of ego-enhancing, God-dishonoring pride in myself. I remember Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who, who after he preached an outstanding sermon, had a woman tell him so. And Spurgeon told the woman, I know it was a good sermon. The devil already told me. See, failure to glorify God in everything is sin. I sin when I don't act out of faith. Sometimes I consume my food without constantly reminding myself of the goodness of God. Sometimes I pray with motives that are impure. Sometimes I struggle with anger, and pride, and envy, and lust, and anxiety for the future because I fail to trust God. And sometimes I doubt the goodness of God. 20 years? I suggest a 20-year pin is the result of pride and, and not of righteousness. That's like an alcoholic putting on a pin with one hand and having a glass of brandy in the other. There is in that view a view of sin that is quite different from the one taught in the Bible. But I'm getting off track. But some of the Methodists taught that it really was possible to have an experience with the Holy Spirit subsequent to conversion in which the Christian becomes fully sanctified on this side of eternity. Well, that really is two-tier Christianity. The charismatic movement came out of that movement in Methodism that already believed that there was just one more experience with the Holy Spirit that would put you over the top. But with the coming of the charismatic movement came the idea of an experience with the Holy Spirit for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It was the idea that one could receive the Holy Spirit gift of power, making one effective in evangelism and opening the door to the sign gifts, especially the gift of tongues. Indeed, as I remember my reading on the subject from, from 1901 to the present, I am still struck by the diversity of the movement. Some taught numerous experiences, conversion, entire sanctification, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then you needed a baptism of fire, and then a baptism of dynamite from the Greek word dunamis, a baptism of power. Some taught numerous subsequent experience. All could be had if one came seeking in faith. And so the altars were constantly open for a new Pentecostal experience. Yes, you may have had the baptism of the Spirit, but did you have the baptism of fire? And so experience after experience became the thing that people were chasing. And eventually, those who argued for only one experience after conversion won the day. You know, initially, many argued that entire sanctification and the baptism in the Spirit into power with the ability to speak in tongues, well, these two became one and the same experience. You experienced them both together. Eventually, because of the sad reality of many moral scandals among some of the early charismatic leaders, the idea of Pentecostal power and sanctification were again separated, ultimately abandoning the idea of entire sanctification. But of course, as many of us are only too aware of today, a great many charismatics have argued that tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. And it is for this reason that tongues became such a flashpoint. 
have you spoken in tongues, basically meant, have you moved from Easter to Pentecost and become a full gospel Christian rather than a half gospel Christian? See, that language was for many like putting a red flag before a bullet. It just invited controversy. But as many of us are also aware, the the charismatic movement has continued to evolve in numerous directions. Today, a great many of charismatics do not believe that tongues is the initial evidence. And then there are those charismatics who argue that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the experience of conversion and that there is no two-tier Christianity at all. But they also argue that the church of today should be asking the Holy Spirit for an outpouring of the gift of tongues prophecy and miracles and healings and words of knowledge. And so even though they deeply disagree with some of the theology of the early charismatic movement, they are thankful for the new openness to all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, the charismatic movement is not one movement. It's more of an umbrella term for those who believe in practicing what we call the sign gifts with an especial interest in tongues, in prophecy, in healing, and in miracles. Now, why am I mentioning all of this? Well, simply because so many of us read 1 Corinthians 14 in the light of this modern debate in which the charismatic movement has become a a global phenomenon, including hundreds of millions of adherents. Because of the size and the effectiveness of the movement, We have people opposing it, sometimes concentrating on abuses or heretical trends in the movement. Nonetheless, there are plenty of people on both sides with an axe to grind. Now, why am I taking the time to point this out? Because I am arguing that we leave this matter aside when we study 1 Corinthians 14. We should do what we are required to do. We start by examining the text. What did it mean to the original hearers? That is, what did it mean to the Christian church in Corinth, Greece, some 2,000 years ago? We need to be careful with the grammar, the context of the passage, following its line of reasoning. Let the passage speak on its own terms. Don't oppose on it what we'd like it to say. And then only after we've understood it are we allowed to apply it to our situation. Once we do that, we might find that we're allowing the Bible to speak for itself. I think you'd agree, sometimes what we need is a dose of encouragement, laughter, and a reminder that God loves us. The goal of Laugh Again is to use storytelling and laughter to engage people of all backgrounds with a message of hope and joy that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus, God, and His Word. Host Phil Calloway provides his unique life perspective and insight in a style that encourages and uplifts. One listener wrote, Thank you for helping keep our focus on gratitude. It truly helps. In these times, I'm grateful to know the God who holds the whole world in the palm of his hand. What an eternally comforting thought. Laugh Again exists to lead people to consider a lifestyle of true joy and hope in Jesus. To find out more or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, like Laugh Again, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.
we began our study of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 by noticing that this text, like so much of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, is in response to questions that the church had asked the apostle. Because the church had become deeply divided, Paul sets out to correct their abuses and answer questions that seem to have perplexed this church. I also said that while we don't have the specific questions that the Corinthians asked Paul, by reading through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, we can fairly accurately reconstruct the questions that they must have asked. See, because Greek culture put so much emphasis on oracles and those who had the ability to speak well, that is, public orators, speaking gifts among the Christians were highly prized. The question they must have asked Paul must have sounded a little like this. Are certain gifts most particularly, tongues and prophecy, are these gifts an indicator of a higher level of spirituality? And Paul's answer has been an unequivocal no. While he argues that the sign gifts like tongues and prophecy and miracles and healing are genuine gifts of the Holy Spirit, he also argues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that all the Corinthian Christians, indeed all Christians in general, have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not everyone, he says, has the gift of tongues, but all are baptized in the Spirit. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit has distributed various gifts as he wills. And in so doing, he has so made it that every member of the body of Christ needs others who have very different gifts than the ones that they have. And he then goes further, stating that love, not the gifts, are the ultimate matter. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is now ready to discuss the heart of their question about tongues and prophecy. That is, after arguing that gifts do not make one more spiritual, and that all need each other, and that love is supreme, he's now finally ready to discuss the very thing that's driving this church apart. So let's start with reading verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. I want you to notice here that Paul is using two different words. When it comes to love, he says, pursue it. The word means something that is done that requires intense effort. It means to strive towards a goal, not just any goal, but, it, but an overarching goal, and being willing to pay a price to get it. He means that this goal in your life is the devotion of your life. I mean, consider, for instance, a man who pursues or is devoted to riches. We've all heard of the person who's willing to sacrifice friends and family to get that, and it's because riches are his devotion. Of course, when it comes to money, that's negative, but when it comes to love, at least the way that it's defined in chapter 13, that's good. Pursue love, he says. Let that be your overarching passion. But now he adds, desire the spiritual gifts. So that word desire simply means be zealous for or be very enthusiastic about. So the implication is clear. What is to be pursued is clearly superior to that which is to be desired or wanted. So that doesn't denigrate the gifts of the Spirit, but it does set the things in order. If you want to know who's led by the Spirit, the answer is the outward manifestation is seen through love and not through gifts. So the very first thing that we learn from 1 Corinthians 14 is that we need to know the difference between a devotion and an enthusiasm. A devotion gives focus to all of life. An enthusiasm is something of great value, but it's something which is less than a devotion. Love comes first. 
Now, of course, even here we are reminded of what we have already learned. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? And you'll remember then that the answer was no. The Holy Spirit decides who gets what. And in the Holy Spirit's infinite wisdom, he distributes gifts as he wills. You may desire a gift, even tongues and prophecy, but according to 1 Corinthians 12.30, the Holy Spirit has already indicated that he's not going to give that gift to every single believer. Okay, that's, that's clear. Now, within that context, Paul continues to speak. So I'm reading all of verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So the question we need to ask here is simply this. Is Paul communicating that we should desire prophecy above all the other gifts, that is, above miracles, above the gift of helps, above the gift of teaching, the gift of utterance of knowledge, the gift of showing mercy, or is he simply communicating that we should desire prophecy above the gift of tongues? Is he saying that prophecy is the ultimate gift, or is he not saying that? How should we understand this text? Now, if we consider the context of chapter 12, we're told that all the gifts are interdependent. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. And then added to that, Paul will say, reading chapter 12, verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So given what Paul has already said, and given that we must assume that he's not wildly contradicting himself, we've got to conclude that when he tells people to especially desire prophecy, he's not saying that they'll all get the gift of prophecy, nor is he saying that prophecy is a greater gift than all of the others. So what is he saying? We have to assume, therefore, that he is saying, desire prophecy, that is, be more enthusiastic about prophecy than you are about tongues. Huh, but, but if that's what he's saying, doesn't that also undercut the idea that all the gifts are equal? Well, no. As we continue to read, what he really has in mind is that when the church gathers, prophecy is of greater value than tongues, that is, in the communal life of the church. I'm going to say more about that as we go on. And he tells us why. Verse 2, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Now, remember, Paul is saying that when the church is gathered, that prophecy is more valuable than tongues. So why? Well, he tells us the one who speaks in tongues is not speaking to people. Now, before I go further, I want you to know that some of you are about to be surprised by what Paul has just said, at least when you think about it. So really, what is it that he said? Well, Paul has just given us a definition of tongues. Did you hear it? Tongues is speaking to God. That is what it is. It is prayer to God. Now, I guess why I think that may be a surprise to some is because of the way that some of us have seen tongues used in our day. I frequently heard tongues used as a preliminary to prophecy. You know, in some charismatic churches, someone will get up and they'll give a message in tongues and then someone else will get up and interpret and they'll begin to say, thus says the Lord, our God is saying, and then they'll give a message from God to us. So let me say it again. According to verse two, and then reinforced again in verse four, we're told that tongues is speaking to God. It is not God speaking to us. It is prayer to God. It's not a message from God. Tongues are never a message from God to us. In fact, tongues has nothing to do with God speaking. It has to do with us speaking. Again, don't defend your position. Just read the text. 
1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2a. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Tongues is not even a word spoken to a human. It is a word that humans speak to God. Let me help you with this. You'll remember that the very first time that tongues happened is on the day of Pentecost. You'll also remember that the Holy Spirit is poured out and he gives the church its first gift. It's the gift of tongues. And do you remember that when there were people from all manner of nations around that they said, I'm reading from Acts 2 verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the phrase mighty works of God is in fact in Israel a technical phrase. It refers to expressions of praise and of worship. You'll also remember that everyone was amazed, but the amazement did not lead to them coming to Christ or to repent or to say, you know, I now know that God is saying something to me. Indeed, they didn't know anything about what God was saying to them until Peter got up to preach. It was preaching and not tongues that delivered God's message to us. So at the very outset, tongues is a gift given by the Holy Spirit, in which the one speaking in tongues is speaking to God and not to people. And consequently, there is no such thing as a message in tongues for God's people. I mean, ask yourself the question, if God has something to say to us, why would he speak to us in a foreign language? He knows our language already. Tongues is a prayer. And as we go through this text, I'm going to point out that prayer is a mystery. Prayer has many facets to it. Prayer has asking and receiving. It has worship. It has meditation. Indeed, there are all manner of ecstatic utterances in prayer. There can be a moment in which the Holy Spirit so intervenes that we pray in a language that we have never spoken before. And that's just the beginning of a marvelous chapter on tongues and prophecy. And that's why tongues is valuable. John, let me get right to the question. The question is this definition of tongues and who it is toward. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know how often that we need to simply hear chapter 14, verse 2, that the person who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, not to men, not to men, not to men. He speaks to God. So, you know, tongues is adoration, it's speech towards God. So, you know, I think we just need to be very clear about that. We need to understand what tongues is for. You know, it's not a prelude to prophecy. It stands on its own. It is, uh, it's, a, it's a prayer language. It is directed towards God. So, you know, I, I just need to re, uh, restate that over and over again. That's the key to understanding these spiritual gifts. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to more this week on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Ephesians Volume 1, Empowered Living, God's Glorious Resources, is your free gift this July. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive and have become examples of the incomparable riches of His grace. Yet some of us live in spiritual bankruptcy, while the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. How do we access this true wealth? We hear about others who have, but We don't know how to achieve it for ourselves. If you feel the struggle, I have good news. We've been given the book of Ephesians, which provides us the tools for empowered living. 
This month, we're making Dr. John's series on Ephesians Empowered Living Volume 1 available digitally or on CD free during July. To get your copy, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.